Now in speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem in Luke 21-24, Jesus said, Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now as with the rest of this prophecy, it was fulfilled in relation to literal Jerusalem, but was also symbolic of the end of the world. When literal Jerusalem came to its end, it remained a prophetic symbol of God's church, just as Babylon remains a prophetic symbol of an apostate church. When the seed of Abraham was no longer counted according to the flesh, but according to faith, the Gentiles, or heathen, are also no longer counted according to the flesh, but according to lack of faith. The Gentiles are a prophetic symbol of all those who are not part of God's people. Now Jesus said in Mark 10.42, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. What Jesus was saying about the Gentiles treading down Jerusalem is that for a time God's people would be subject to the authority of Gentile nations that would rule over them and oppress them. At first it was the Roman emperors who were given, quote, power over all kindreds and tongues and nations, end quote, to stamp upon the residue of God's people with their feet. After the Roman dragon came to its end and its kingdom was splintered, the resulting ten Gentile kingdoms that supposedly converted continued to tread down God's people. When this unholy Roman Empire was overthrown by Napoleon in 1798, the kingdoms of these Gentiles were replaced by our modern secular supposedly enlightened democracies. Yet they likewise have set God aside and have continued to do as they please and tread down both God's law and his people. Psalms 2, 2-3 describes what is happening in the world today. It says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. They legalise and protect the abominations of the heathen, the sacrifice of unborn and newborn children, the erasing of the God-given distinction between man and woman, the promotion of fornication among all, but particularly amongst children, the taking away of freedom of conscience, the indoctrination of the young with pantheism, paganism and atheism. And those who oppose these abominations are fired from their jobs, sued at court and criminally charged with hate speech. Even in once Christian countries, Bible believers are fined and imprisoned for asserting biblical principles. The catalogue of attacks on the Bible and its followers by the rulers of this world is long and becoming more direct and open. Today the rulers of the Gentiles are preparing to do what Revelation 13.12 says, to exercise all the power of the first beast before them and cause the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast. What must God, watching from afar off, think of all this? Is he not jealous for his people who are called by his name? Would he not be displeased with the heathen? We read what God thinks 
and what he will do to them in Psalms 2, 4 to 5. He says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. And in Zechariah 2, verses 8 to 9, it says, Behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants, and ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me. When the cup of their iniquity is full, the times of the Gentiles will have been fulfilled, and he will smite the nations with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And David speaks of it in Psalm 78, 65 to 66. He says, Then the Lord awakened as one out of sleep, and like a mighty man that shouteth by reason of wine. And he smote his enemies in the hinder paths and put them to a perpetual reproach. Now Zechariah gives us much more details about what God will do when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In verse 12, 2-4, he says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. And all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. And in verses 8 to 9, it says, In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he that is feeble among them in that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. What we want to know is how much longer will Jerusalem be trodden down? How long until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled? As David wrote in Psalms 13, 1-2, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long will they hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart every day? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? And in Psalms 94, 3-5, Lord, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter their and speak hard things? And all the workers of iniquity boast themselves. They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. You know, it is out of mercy that God bears long with the heathen. God allows them to tread down Jerusalem, that in the process of doing so, they may become acquainted with his character. Just as Paul was persecuted that he might bear witness of the truth before the kings of the earth, God is long-suffering towards the Gentiles, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Paul himself talks about the times of the Gentiles as well, but not just as a time when the church would be oppressed, but a time when those who are Gentiles according to the flesh are made partakers of the gospel. He says in Romans 11, verses 22 and 25, Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God. On them which fell, severity, but towards thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise thou shalt also be cut off. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, 
lest you should be wise in your own conceit that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. How long will this be? In Acts 10 through 34, Peter observed that God is not a respecter of persons. God holds the Gentiles in exactly the same amount of esteem that he holds the Jews, and no less. Accordingly, he must give the Gentiles the same amount of time to come to repentance that he gave to the Jews. The times of the Gentiles cannot be less than the time of Israel. When did the times of Israel begin? Well, beginning with Abraham in the year 1946 BC, God's chosen people lasted for 1980 years until the gospel was taken from them and given to the Gentiles in 34 AD. Christianity has now been amongst the Gentiles for 1,998 years, 18 years more than the Jews had. The fullness of the times of the Gentiles is about come. We see that the time for God's people to be delivered from their authorities at hand in the increasingly desperate attempts to abolish freedom and the knowledge of God in the earth. But today, I want to consider the events that are to take place when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, of how God is going to make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about. And we find this in a vision in the first six chapters in the book of Zechariah. Prophets and Kings, page 587. It says, Zechariah's vision of Joshua and the angel, which we're going to read today, applies with peculiar force to the experience of God's people in the closing scenes of the great day of atonement. And in Manuscripts Released, Volume 1, page 315, it says, The work of which the prophet Zechariah writes is a type of the spiritual restoration to be wrought for Israel before the end of time. Now this vision, beginning in chapter 1 of Zechariah, begins by telling us why the Gentiles are permitted to tread down God's people. It is the sins of God's people that has removed from them his blessings and permitted them to be trodden down. As we read in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, now it says, The Lord has been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say that unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear, nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. Who is the Lord displeased with here? Is it the heathen? Who is it that has set aside the words of God's prophet and refused to hearken unto the Lord? Is it us? Desire of Ages 6.33 Had the church of Christ done who appointed work as the Lord ordained, the Lord Jesus would have come to the earth in power and great glory. Evangelism 6.96 For 40 years did unbelief, murmuring and rebellion shut out ancient Israel from the land of Canaan. The same sins have delayed the entrance of modern Israel into the heavenly Canaan. It is the unbelief, the worldliness, the unconsecration, 
the strife among the Lord's professed people that have kept us in this world of sorrow and sin so many years. And Crest Collection, page 95, but the work that all heaven was waiting to do as soon as men prepared the way, this was written in 1902, was not done. For the leaders of the work, and we're not talking about the Jews here, nor the Catholics, the leaders of the work closed and bolted the door against the Spirit's entrance. The doors were barred against the heavenly current. Men left their sins unconfessed and said to the Spirit of God, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Is that not sufficient reason for God to be displeased with us? Had our fathers believed and yielded to God, how much suffering would have been averted? How much sin would have been avoided? How many billions of souls would have escaped the lake of fire? Think of how many people have been born and how many have died. The longer God must wait, the more sin and suffering he must bear. You might not bear it, but he does. Yet he still waits, hoping that unlike our fathers, who perished in the way without entering into his rest, we might repent before he arises to smite his enemies and put them into a perpetual reproach. He says in Isaiah 48.9, For my name's sake will I defer my anger, and for my praise will I refrain from thee that I cut thee off. Now just before Jesus told his disciples that Jerusalem would be trodden down by the Gentiles, they had, with deep sense of pride, called the attention of Jesus to the magnificence of the temple. The stones of the temple were of the purest marble, of perfect whiteness, and some of them of almost fabulous size. They rejoiced in its strength and beauty, yet before him Christ could only see a desolate heap of ruin when there should not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. The pride and the confidence of the disciples of the temple would be replaced with insecurity, with fear, with weeping and doubt. There are those today who are satisfied and pleased with the prosperity and the success of God's church who feel in a sense of pride in its schools, its universities and its hospitals who complacently put their trust in its institutions. They cannot see its backsliding, its blindness and spiritual poverty. But we are told in Review and Herald, page 21, 18, 98, the Lord cannot bestow his Holy Spirit upon them. If he did, they would misinterpret and exalt themselves still higher because of it. Their self-pleasing ideas are a great hindrance. Whatever part they act, self is the main picture presented. Their own zeal and devotion are thought to be the great power of the truth. This is why the Gentiles are permitted and continue to tread down Jerusalem. Now the longer the Gentiles are in authority, the more tyranny increases. 
because power gradually corrupts those who have it. They are now in the process of warming up, of flexing their muscles in preparation for the final desperate struggle to destroy God's word and his people. The time is near when God will have no choice but to intervene. For except those days be shortened, there shall no flesh be saved. Zechariah continues to describe the the scene we read in verse 8 of chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, and it says, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse, and he stood upon the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, and behind him were their red horses speckled and white. Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord has sent to walk to and throw the earth. Who are these horses? Now we know in prophecy that a beast represents a kingdom. And so these are the kingdoms of the Gentiles because the horse is an unclean beast. These are the kingdoms of the Gentiles that have dominion upon the earth. And God has given them that dominion. Zechariah's contemporary prophet Haggai actually gave the answer to Zechariah's question. In Haggai 2.22, he said, I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. Now Zechariah himself asks, how long? until that takes place. How long will the heathen prosper? In verses 12 to 15 of Zechariah chapter 1, Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which thou hast had great indignation? So the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy and I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. For I was a little displeased and they have helped forward the affliction. What more today could be done to put the heathen at ease? The evil practices of the heathen are promoted at public expense. Their abominations are protected by law. Criticising their wickedness is termed a hate crime. Those that refuse to celebrate their corruptions are prosecuted. If this was not enough to displease the pure and holy one, whose very nature recoils from evil, government-sponsored schools deceive, groom and coerce innocent and unsuspecting children to join with the sins of the heathen. This is why we continue reading in verses 18 to 21 of Zechariah chapter 1. He says, Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, behold, four horns. And I said unto the angel that talked with me, What be these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four carpenters. Then said I, What come these to do? And he spake, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Jerusalem, so that no man did lift up his head. But these are come to fray them, 
to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. So Zechariah is telling us here that God will beat down the power of the heathen to oppress his people. But before that takes place, something else must happen. That's described in the two verses that we skipped over, verses 16 to 17 of Zechariah chapter 1. And those verses say, Therefore thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts, and the line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. Cry yet, saying, This, saith the Lord of hosts, my city through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and the Lord shall comfort Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem. So before the Gentile, the power of the Gentiles is frayed, a line shall be stretched over Jerusalem. This is explained in more details in the second chapter of Zechariah, where it says, I lifted up mine eyes again, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Whither goest thou? And he said unto me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. When you measure something, you do it to see if it's the right size or if it's too short. This is exactly the same line, the same measurement that we read of in Revelation chapter 11, verse 1, which says, And there was given unto me a reed, like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. Now, in old days, they didn't have tape measures. They used a stick, a reed, to measure. And so what we see is that Jerusalem would be measured before the carpenters come, before the times of the heathen end. And Revelation 11 verse 2 actually confirms that that's exactly what happens because Revelation 11 verse 2 says that the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not for it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot. So we see that Revelation 11 is telling us about exactly the same event that Zechariah is telling us about. Now, Revelation 11, we are told, does not apply to the past, but to the future. Letter 58, written in 1906. Let all who would understand the meaning of these things read the 11th chapter of Revelation. Read every verse and learn about the things that are yet to take place. What does this measurement represent? Well, in Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 972, it says the grand judgment is taking place and has been going on for some time. Now the Lord says, measure the temple and the worshippers thereof. Remember, when you are walking the streets about your business, God is measuring you. Here is the work going on, measuring the temple and its worshippers to see who will stand in the last day. There is another place in the scripture where we're told about the measurement of the temple. It's in Ezekiel chapter 9. 
where we see exactly the same three-step process that we read about in Revelation 11. The process begins with the measurement of the leaders, it passes to the ministers, and finally the members. And we read in Ezekiel 9 verse 4, And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that are done in the midst thereof. And 1888 materials, page 1303, says the time will soon come when the prophecy of Ezekiel 9 will be fulfilled to the very letter. Now something else takes place at the same time the temple is measured before God phrased the power of the Gentiles. And if we go back to the book of Haggai, which was Zechariah's contemporary prophet, so he's prophesying about the same thing, and read the verse before the one that we read about overthrowing the horses and their riders, Haggai 2, verses 21 to 22, it says, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. So there is a shaking that takes place just before the time when the kingdoms of the Gentiles are destroyed. When the temple is measured, the shaking separates from God's people those whose names are in the book of life and those whose names are not in the book of life. We read in Testimonies, volume 7, page 219, the time has come when everything is to be shaken that can be shaken, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Every case is coming in review before God. He is measuring the temple and the worshippers are in. The shaking and the measurement of the temple go hand in hand. And we know that the shaking of God blows away multitudes like dry leaves. Testimonies, volume 4, page 89. However, this process of purification that must take place, the shaking and measurement of the temple, cannot happen until something happens before that. And that is, God's servants are sealed. We read in Bible Commentary, volume 4, 1161, just as soon as God's people are sealed and prepared for the shaking, it will come. So, before the times Gentiles can come to an end, the temple must be measured and the seal must be placed upon those who are to be sealed. Then the shaking separates those that are sealed from those whose names are to be blotted out. Now, some time ago I spoke about the straight gate and the narrow way and showed that the straightness of the gate is not the same as the narrowness of the way. Few who left Egypt entered Canaan. Not all that worked on building the ark entered with Noah when the door was sealed shut. For us, that door represents the seal of God. Few of those that accept and proclaim the three angels' messages will receive the seal of God. When those without the seal of God are shaken out, the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. As we read in Haggai 2.7, and the remnant will be filled with glory. And he says, And I will shake all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Zechariah himself said exactly the same thing after he spoke of the measurement of the temple in Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says in verse 5, For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. It is then that God's people who are in Babylon will be hurried out. As we read in the next two verses of Zechariah chapter 6 to 7, Ho, ho, come forth, he says, and flee from the land of the north, saith the Lord. 
the land of north is a reference to Babylon. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of heaven, saith the Lord. Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. And we read about this call out of Babylon that the remnant will give with great power and glory in Revelation 18 where it says, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power. And the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins. Now returning to Zechariah, we are told in the next few verses, 10 to 11, why the Lord measures his church, why he will gather his people. Verses 10 to 11 of Zechariah 2 says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. The Lord wants to dwell in the midst of his people. But he cannot do so while God's people mingle with sin and sinners. God cannot dwell in the midst of an impure people because they would all be destroyed. Signs of the Times, January 20, 1898. Lord cannot manifest himself to profess Christians who love the world. Jeremiah 4.24, for the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Leviticus 15.31, thus shall you separate the children of Israel from the uncleanliness, that they die not in their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. If the Lord was to come to us today, what would be the result? Would we be destroyed? There is another reason why the Lord does not yet bring many to his church. Testimonies, volume 6, 371. The Lord does not now work to bring many souls into the truth because of the church members who have never been converted and those who were once converted but who are backslidden. What influence would these unconsecrated members have on new converts? Well, she answered that herself in Review and Herald, January 28, 1904. The half-hearted Christian exerts an influence more harmful than the influence of the avowed infidel. God must purify his remnant and separate them from sin and sinners before he can dwell among them and before he can gather to them all those that serve him in sincerity and truth. Now after Zechariah is told what God is about to do, he is shown the means by which he's going to do this. And so we read now in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. He says, And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now the only time the high priest came before God on behalf of the people was in the day of atonement service. Now in Hebrew, the name Joshua is the same name as Jesus, who was a high priest in heaven. So at first glance we see it looks like this is a picture of Jesus pleading for his people. But Jesus is not a brand plucked from the fire. 
We also read in the following verse, Zechariah 3.3, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. We see that Joshua is not clothed in white robes. He does not have the righteousness of the saints, but he's filthy and defiled. Joshua represents the true condition of God's people in the closing scenes of the great day of atonement. Remember that quote I read at the beginning about Joshua and that it applied especially to this time? But Joshua does not represent all of God's people, but only those who realise their sinfulness, who, like Paul, consider themselves to be the chief of sinners and who are pleading with God for holiness, for victory, for the divine nature, for total surrender. Those that are not deluded that they already have the wedding garment. Those who are not deluded that God overlooks their filthiness and sees only Christ's righteousness. Joshua represents those that do not accept Satan's lie, that because they presume it to be so, that God sees them as if they had never sinned. Not at all. Instead, Joshua recognises his wretched condition and is pleading with God. Petrarch's Prophets and Kings 587 as Joshua pleaded before the angel, so the remnant church, with brokenness of heart and unfaltering faith. Are you part of the remnant? This is how you know. Will plead for pardon and deliverance through Jesus, their advocate. They are fully conscious of the sinfulness of their lives. They see their weakness and unworthiness and they are ready to despair. This is the condition of all those who will remain when the temple is measured and the majority is shaken out. They symbolically bear Jesus' name. This is why they're represented by Joshua. Because they are those who reflect his image, who follow him whithersoever he goeth and are one with him. Here we see two classes. Those who are careless and indifferent presuming their sins to be forgiven and thinking that their belief in the truth, their supposed relationship with Jesus and religious experience is sufficient to gain them an entry into heaven. And those that recognise that they fall far, far short of heaven and are pleading with God to be purified for the victory over themselves and over sin. Are you ready to despair because of your weakness and unworthiness and sinfulness? Are you pleading with God, with brokenness of heart and unfaltering faith for pardon and deliverance? Or do you think you already have that? Zechariah 3 now, verses 4 and 5, the next two verses. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. And I said, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Only those who are afflicting their souls in the great day of atonement will obtain the robe of righteousness and receive the victor's crown. The rest will be counted with the wicked and perish together with them. Now verses 6 to 7. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, 
And if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts. And I will give thee places to walk amongst these that stand by. Now Zechariah is next shown how the Lord is going to accomplish it. How he is going to measure his church. How he is going to cleanse his people from sin. How he is going to shake the nations and call the Gentiles to come out of Babylon. How he is going to subdue the heathen. In chapter 4, and we'll start with verse 2, and we're going to read from 2 to 5. And the angel, and I'm going to skip a couple of words, said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes of seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof, and the two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? So Zechariah seems to have forgotten Psalms. 119, 105 tells us very clearly that thy word is a lamp unto my feet. So the, answer, the angel replies to Zechariah and tells him exactly that. That is an illustration of the word of God. He says in verse 6 of that same chapter, And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. The word can only give light through the agency of the Holy Spirit. We can have the words, we can memorize the word like the Jews did, but unless we have the Holy Spirit, it's a dead letter. Without the oil, the word has no light. It becomes, as it was, the Jew, a curse. The five foolish virgins know and teach the word, but they have no oil in their lamps, and because of it they are left out of the wedding feast when the bridegroom returns. As Jesus himself said in John 6, 63, he said, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. A word without the Spirit is death, not by might nor by power. It is the word of the Lord acting through the power of the Holy Spirit that will subdue the heathen and purify his church and perfect the saints. Not by any resource or any effort of man, but by the word of the Lord. How was the heaven and the earth created? By the word of the Lord. He doesn't need you accomplish his word, it will be accomplished anyway, whether you want to be part of it or not. Now we saw that the temple must be measured and the church be purified before God's glory can be revealed in the church. Zechariah makes that very clear. Now what is God's glory? When will God's glory be revealed? Well, we read and hope for and expect for the coming of the latter rain, when God's glory will surpass anything that has ever been revealed to man. The latter rain comes to finish the work of calling people out of Babylon. So what then is this spirit that will bring about the purification and shaking in the church? It's not the latter rain, because that takes place before the latter rain comes. It is the early rain which leads God's people to see their own weakness and unworthiness 
and the sinfulness of their lives and lead them to plead with God with brokenness of heart and unfaltering faith for pardon and deliverance. Now some will rise up against this testimony as we read in the Spirit of Prophecy and that is what will cause the shaking amongst God's people. Now Zechariah tells us that it doesn't matter how insurmountable the difficulties are that stand in the way of God's work being accomplished, they will be removed. In Zechariah 4 verse 7, the next verse, Who art thou, O great mountain? It says, Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying grace, grace unto it. Now the word translated here as headstone Literally, in the Hebrew, means to build. He shall bring forth the building. It is through the work of the early rain that God will build up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, as we're told in 1 Peter 2.5. Now, what holy priesthood is to be built up in the last days? Can we think of the priesthood of the 144,000? The reason why God raised the remnant church is not for us to bask in its glory, as the Jews bask in the glory of Israel, but for the purpose of bringing forth 144,000, those who will be translated to heaven without seeing death. In early writings, page 19, we're told that there is a temple in the new earth but only the 144,000 are permitted to enter that temple. No one else is. In that temple are tables of stone upon which the names of the 144,000 are engraved in letters of gold. So a temple is being built. It's being built in the lives of the 144,000. And this is the temple through which the glory of God will be manifested. And this is what Zechariah is telling us about. Now we read in the next few verses, Zechariah 4, verses 8 to 10. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice, and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. And so God has revealed to uh, Zechariah here that this work the work of building this temple will be completed in one generation those who have laid the foundation will finish it and Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 tells us what that foundation is Paul says it is the foundation of repentance and faith have you begun this work or do you have no need of repentance now in verse 10, Zechariah tells us a little bit more about this and he says, Those seven are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro from the earth. Now these eyes of the Lord are mentioned seven times in the Bible and they are a symbol of God's perfect knowledge of the deeds of both the evil and the good to give unto each his reward. And so going on to verse 11 now in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? 
And I answered again, said unto him, What be these two olive branches through which the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? If the lamp is the word of God and the oil is the early rain of the Holy Spirit, then what are the two olive trees? And that's what Zechariah wanted to know. So in verse 14, he says, And he answered unto me and said, Knowest not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now the word ones, the two anointed ones, is used about 5,000 times in the Bible, in the Hebrew, and is almost always translated as son, sons, or children. So who then are these two anointed sons? And what we're told in the Spirit of Prophecy, uh, Letters and Manuscripts, Volume 13, Letter 13, 1898. These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Here, the messengers of God are represented by the olive branches. This is the heavenly vital communication from God to every soul who is emptied of self. The heavenly oil communicated to the human agent is to be given to those with consecrated channels to flow forth from them to others. So we notice here that the heavenly oil is communicated to the human agent to be given to those with consecrated channels. Testimonies of Ministers, page 510. The mission of the two anointed ones is to communicate light and power to God's people. The heavenly messengers seek to communicate all that they receive from God to God's people. Letters and Manuscripts, volume 15, manuscript 6, 1900. It is a spiritual power which he receives from the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. This oil, the Holy Spirit of God, coming from God to the, to the instrumentality, he employs flows forth into other lives and makes others laborers together with God. So these two anointed ones, they're human agents. Now having explained what, how God is going to judge and purify his church and perfect the saints, Zechariah now describes the judgment that God is going to pour out upon those who fall short when the measuring line is put against them when the temple is measured. And these are those who are not with brokenness of heart and unfaltering faith pleading for pardon and deliverance. Those whose clothes remain filthy because they have relied on their own faith, on their own efforts, on their own resources to build up their spiritual house. Reading Zechariah chapter 5 now, verse 1. It says there, Then I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a flying roll. So here we see a book in heaven. Are there books in heaven? Revelation 20.12 says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. What's written in these books? Not just every good work, but every evil work and sin. And going on to verse 2 of Zechariah, he said unto me, What seest thou? And I answered and said, I see a flying roll. The length thereof is 20 cubits, and the breadth thereof is 10 cubits. And we think, why in the world does he tell us the size of this book that's flying in heaven? There must be some reason for it. God doesn't tell us trivia just for the heck of filling our heads with nonsense. Well, you know, there is somewhere else in the Bible where it tells us about something that's 20 by 10 cubits. And we read about it 
in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 3. And the porch before the temple of the house was 20 cubits, the length thereof, according to the breadth of the house, and 10 cubits was the breadth before the house. What is this porch? Well, this is the porch that Solomon built before the entrance into the holy place between the altar of burnt offering and the temple itself. That's exactly the same size as this book. You think, what in the world does that have to do with a book with sins inscribed on it? When the Israelites brought their lamb to the temple, what happens to their sins? Do they just evaporate? No. The sins became part of the temple. The blood was spread on the horns of the altar. And the, the sins were transferred into the temple. And so what this book represents, it represents the record of all those whose sins are confessed but not forgiven. You see, in order for the sins to be forgiven, not only did they have to be the blood sprinkled before the altar of burnt sacrifice, but the blood had to be carried into the temple itself. And unless it was carried into the temple, the sins were not forgiven. Those who enter the courtyard of the temple and stand at the door of this heavenly sanctuary claiming the blood of Christ, but who have never entered will not obtain pardon. Are you standing in the courtyard pleading the blood of Christ but, not have, but have not entered therein? They never go in before the veil. The blood is not sprinkled on the altar of incense. Their prayers do not ascend before God. They may take the first steps in seeking forgiveness but never experience true repentance. Their confessions are like those of Esau and Balaam. This book, this flying scroll, contains the record of sins of those who know the law, who claim to obey the law, but never obtain righteousness by faith. These are those that hold the truth in unrighteousness. And Paul describes them in Galatians 3.10, For as many are as of the works of the law under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the Lord to do it. And Zechariah actually describes this curse in the very next verse. He says in verses 3 to 4 of Zechariah 5, he says, And he said unto me, This is the curse that goeth forth over the face of the whole earth. For every one that stealeth shall be cut off on this side according to it. And every one that sweareth shall be cut off on that side according to it. And I will bring it forth, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief, and into the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name. Do you call yourself a Christian, but have never been converted? Have never really been born again? Is that swearing falsely by his name? And it shall remain in the midst of his house and shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. And as we know, Paul says, the wrath of God is removed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. A day is coming when God's mercy will no longer shield those who have known the truth but not lived it. A day of judgment against those that continue in the evil ways of their fathers. A day when their sins will find them out. When there remains no more sacrifice to see their sins 
A day when the door shall be shut and the foolish virgins been left out. A day when the names of those who presume themselves to have a relationship with God but have never died to self will be blotted from the book of life. In that day, God will separate the sheep from the goats. He shall gather out to himself a faithful remnant. As Romans 9.27 says, Isaiah also cries concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. So what we see now is that two parties have developed. A few who are wise and a large majority who are foolish. Those who receive the seal of God and those whose names are blotted out. The angel then shows Zechariah what will happen to the millions there are as the sand of the sea. In verses 5 to 8. Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes and see what is that goeth forth. And I said, What is it? And he said, It is an ephath that goeth forth. He said, Moreover, this is the resemblance to all the earth. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead. And this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephath. And he said, This is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephath, and he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. Now what is an ephath? Well, an ephath is a basket of a specific volume that was used for weighing out wheat. Whenever you used to go buy wheat, you buy an ephath. Today we buy a kilo, they used to buy an ephath. And a talent of lead, Zechariah says, is placed over the mouth of the ephath to seal it closed. And as we know from Scripture, a woman represents a church. A wicked woman is an adulterous church. And this woman is wickedness. So the woman in the Ephah is clearly a woman who's been weighed, measured, and found wanting. Because she's wicked. Its case has been closed and its fate is sealed. Now we ask, what woman is this? What woman is it that is put away? Is it that we find in Revelation 17 called Mystery Babylon? Or is it some other woman? Let's continue. What does Zechariah tell us? Verses 9 to 11 of chapter 5. Then lifted up mine eyes and looked. Behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings. For they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah, between earth and the heaven. And then said I to the angel, talk to me, whether do these bear the ephah? And he said unto me, to build an house, to build it an house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. Now, Leviticus 11.19 tells us that the stork is an unclean bird. And these two women have wings like storks, so they are unclean women. So these two women come to the first woman and carry it to the land of Shinar to establish it there. Now, we note that Shinar in the Bible is the land of Nimrod, where the city of Babylon was built. So this woman is not in Babylon. He gets carried to the land of Babylon, okay, not to Babylon itself. So what can we see from, from what Zechariah is telling us? First of all, the woman in the Ephah is... At first, not in the land of Shinar. It's not a neighbour to Babylon. Two, it's taken to Shinar by two unclean women. 
Babylon has daughters who are unclean, as Babylon herself is unclean. So this woman is taken to Shinar by the daughters of Mystery Babylon. Now in Shinar, it doesn't disappear. It preserves its own base, its own foundation, its own identity in the land of Shinar. And fourthly, it doesn't become part of Babylon, but it's established in close association. It's a neighbour to Babylon. So what does this mean? What, who is this woman? Well, we're reading what God is going to do to those who do not receive the seal of God. That's what Zechariah is telling us about. And so here what we see is those nominal Adventists whose names will be blotted out, they're not just going to drift away and disappear, just as the five foolish virgins in Christ's parable didn't just disappear and fade away. They stayed together and they came back and knocked on the door as a group. They will preserve their identity and they will close ranks to oppose those with the seal of God. Coveting the power and the spirit that accompanies those who are sealed, they will go to the merchants of Babylon, as we read about that we read about Revelation 18, to obtain a spirit. And they will then take the hand of the daughters of Babylon and join with them in persecuting God's people. And you know, what's interesting about this is that that's exactly what happened to the Jews after probation closed for them. After Jerusalem was destroyed, the Jews that remained, that were scattered all throughout the Roman Empire, were persecuted because the Romans hated the Jews for good reason. And so what did they do? They all went back to join their brethren who had never left Babylon. And Babylon became the centre of Judaism for the next 1,000 years. It is in Babylon that the Jews finally wrote down the traditions and sayings of the fathers, of their rabbis, and called it the Talmud, their holiest book. Now, they were carried to the land of Shinar and established there on their own base. They're still Jews today. And we are told that that which has been will be again. It is after the church has been purified and those who are not converted depart that the times of the Gentiles comes to an end. As we read in the very next chapter, verse 1 of Zechariah 6, and he says, And I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came four chariots from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. And verse 45, And I answered and said unto the angel, Talk to me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said unto me, These are the four spirits, or winds, that's the same word as winds, of the heavens, which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. Now when Elisha saw the, the angelic host, he called out, The chariots of God and the horsemen thereof. In Revelation 7, we're told that it is after the 144,000 have been sealed that the four winds of heaven are released, a symbol of war and strife. This is how the horns of power of the heathen are frayed when the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This will end their ability to exercise authority God's people and will quieten God's spirit. As we read in verse 6 and 8 of Zechariah chapter 6, the black horses 
which are the red go forth into the north country and the white go forth after them and the grizzled go forth towards the south country. And he cried unto me and spake unto me, saying, Behold, these that go towards the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. And the north country in the Bible is a reference to Babylon. And the south country in the Bible is a reference to Egypt. One a religious power and the other a secular, atheistic power. Both which oppress God's people. Both will be broken that God's word may be fulfilled. As we read in verse 9 of Zechariah 6, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, And in verse 11, Take silver and gold and make crowns and set them upon the head of Joshua the son of Josedek the high priest. And verses 14 to 15, And the crown shall be to Helam and to Tobijah and Hedajiah and to the hand of the southern Zephaniah for a memorial in the temple of the Lord. And they that are far off shall come and build the temple of the Lord and shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So here we see after the power of the heathen is destroyed that crowns are given to Joshua. But not just to Joshua, but to Helam and Tobijah, etc. But the interesting thing is that the version of the Bible that Jesus used and the disciples used, the Septuagint, didn't use the words, the proper names of Helam and Tobijah. Instead, it actually says, to them that wait patiently, and to the useful men, and to them that have known it. And we read about the patience of the saints, and of those that know the truth. These are those who shall help complete building the temple of God, because their name shall be written for a memorial in the temple. What, what did Andrew White say about the temple in the new earth? Where are the names of 144,000 written? In the temple that no one but them can enter. So this is talking about the victory, the crowning of the 144,000. If Joshua represents 144,000, then these others are those who join with them in the loud cry um, to do his work. They shall also receive crowns. So in summary, Joshua describes all the events that shall take place when the time of the Gentiles with him God is displeased is fulfilled. God is longing to bring to an end the times of the Gentiles, but he is delayed in doing so because his people are complacent and unholy. God may be displeased with the Gentiles, but he is also displeased with his people who hear the word of the Lord, but have not hearkened unto it. Thus the Gentiles will continue to tread down God's people until, like Joshua, they plead with God to be purified from sin and sin. The time is at hand when God will measure his people temple. And those who see their own weakness and unworthiness and the sinfulness of their lives and are pleading with God with brokenness of heart and unfaltering faith for pardon and deliverance will be purified and will obtain righteousness. While those that have stood at the door of the sanctuary but have never entered in spite of their offerings, in spite of their confessions of sin, who know the truth but have not lived it, who will in the day of atonement not afflict their souls, who desire forgiveness and pardon, but not obtained it, they will be cursed. The record of their sins is kept in heaven and will one day visit them and cut them off. Two distinct groups of Adventists will be formed. One will obtain crowns of glory 
the other will stand together with the daughters of Babylon and partake of their spirit and receive the mark of the beast. Which group will you be in when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled?